Hey friends, I'm excited to share some info about a show that some friends of mine create. Have you ever baked cookies with a space marine? Gone to a birthday party for a princess T-Rex? Been to a rock concert with a vampire robot vacuum? If not, you can visit the Imagine Neighborhood, where you will meet fantastic new friends, go on exciting adventures together, and even learn how to be a happier, kinder person. So tell a grown-up to check out the Imagine Neighborhood, especially their limited series, Imagine Equity, six stories about race, justice, and making things right. Sponsored by the Allstate Foundation, Imagine Equity will help your family talk together about important things like identity, bias, inclusion, all while laughing your face off. Visit theimagineneighborhood.org forward slash past to join in all the fun. Oh, hey, y'all. Welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this podcast is something that I love to do, so I'm glad that you are tuned in. As usual, we share two stories from the past that relate to a theme. Of course, there's some other stuff thrown in there, too. And this episode is about books, or at least that's how we get into the stories that we're going to tell. One story is about librarians working to protect some of the most valuable books in history from people. The other story is kind of flipped. In one Paris library, librarians work to keep people safe from a book. It's a book that Marie Curie once owned. If you didn't know, Marie was awesome, and you'll hear all about her and her radioactive discoveries, as well as Fort Knox, King John I, the 1939 World's Fair, and an important piece of paper known as the Magna Carta, and much more on this episode. That's a whole lot of weird mishmash stuff. I bet you're wondering how we got it all in one episode. Well, let's find out. Librarians. You might not think of them as daring, super-secret, plan-making shot callers, but in December of 1941, one particular librarian recognized the need to protect the most important documents in American history, and he did what had to be done. This brave man wasn't just a librarian, he was also a... poet. Oh. So poets are also typically not what you think of when you think of someone bravely protecting national treasures. But maybe this guy proves that we should give poets a little more credit when it comes to extreme measures. This guy, this sneaky savior of scripts and scrolls, was Archibald McLeish. And in 1939, he was asked by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, to be the librarian of Congress. It was a duty that he accepted with great honor and seriousness. In a few short years, he found himself working feverishly to secretly move some of the most important documents in history from Washington, D.C. to a safer, secure location. The day after Christmas in 1941, with the help of Secret Service and armed guards, Archibald loaded some cases onto a departing train amidst the busyness of the Washington, D.C. train station. The agent in charge only knew that the boxes were of national importance but he didn't know what was inside, and his curiosity got the best of him. Um, what's in the box? You do not want to know. What's in the box? Just some important papers and stuff. This seems kind of excessive for that. What's in the box? What's in the box? Don't lose your head, pal. If you really want to know, it's just the, uh, 
The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Gettysburg Address, an original Gutenberg Bible, a few other things like that. What do you mean, things like that? Are they the originals? Yep. The real deal, super irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind original versions of the most important papers in America. So be careful, okay? Oh, did I say important to America? I meant the world. You see, the Magna Carta is in there too. Cheerio! The Magna Carta? How did that get here? It's a long story. He's right. The story goes all the way back to the medieval period. The year 1215 was a big one for England. King John had built up massive debts from wars that he had waged and lost. King Philip II of France took a bunch of his lands and left poor Johnny looking at his empty money bags. King John in turn figured he'd make up for his flagging funds by raising taxes on his land-holding barons who sat beneath him in the hierarchy of English feudal society. Those guys were not having it. They didn't like his ways, especially that he behaved however he saw fit, unbound by any rules. So they stormed his castle and held him hostage until he was willing to negotiate. The result was a document, an agreement between King John and the barons called Magna Carta, or the Great Charter. It said a lot of things in its Latin text, but in there somewhere, King John agreed that a ruler and government must abide by laws, just like everyone else. Also in there was a bit about how a person accused of a crime would be judged by a jury of their own peers. This agreement to hold King John accountable, Magna Carta, became the foundation of huge parts of society and governments. It is the first thing that British lawyers, called barristers, will study. It was also fundamentally important to the founders of America in creating the Constitution. And that bit about a trial by a jury of peers should sound familiar to just about anyone. Many historians would argue that it is the most important legal document in history because it blazed the trail and laid the groundwork for nearly everything that came afterwards. After being agreed upon and signed way back in 1215, a few copies of Magna Carta were made to spread the word. They were all handwritten because, well, duh, that was the only way in the 13th century, long before Gutenberg's printing press came along. And only four original copies survive today. And for centuries, the quartet of Magna Cartas was safely nestled in England. But in 1939, on the eve of World War II, New York City was hosting a huge World's Fair. And despite the theme being the world of tomorrow, England thought that they would demonstrate their commitment to friendship with America and highlight the two nations' common roots by sending something not from tomorrow, but yesterday. Or the yesterday of 724 years ago, rather. Once upon a time, where the 1939 New York World's Fair would stand in Queens, you would find the largest ash dump that you could imagine. Generations of New Yorkers and the businesses that they kept running heated many of their buildings with coal and wood. Also, tired of feeding their trash to bands of wild pigs, it became common to burn trash in incinerators. This left tons of ash. What did they do with what was left? Well, they made an ash dump. Garbage ash as far as the eye can see. It was a mess. But when it was decided to create a huge, epic World's Fair to end all World's Fairs, the people in charge made the New York City government an offer that they couldn't refuse. Give us the land, we'll clear it for the World's Fair, and when it's over, we'll leave you with a beautiful park. It's all yours. 
The incredible 1939 New York World's Fair was a celebration with pavilions and buildings dedicated to 63 countries around the world, each highlighting their culture, their achievement, and their visions for the future. In addition to international opportunities, crowds of people could come to see robots, see-through cars, and even a revolutionary new invention, the television. And of course, at the British Pavilion, people could cast their eyes on something that had never left England before. Magna Carta. Probably not as exciting as the TV to most, but historical documents are still thrilling for some. <clears throat> and it should go without saying that it was a huge risk to send this priceless, irreplaceable document across the ocean to a former ash dump during a time of international conflict. But to be clear... I'm going to say it anyway. It was a huge risk to send the priceless, irreplaceable document across the ocean during a time of international conflict. Just so we're clear. Meanwhile, the Nazi party had been on the rise in Germany and would soon invade France. After that, they'd cast their treacherous eyes upon England with plans to do the same. Nothing was safe, even Magna Carta especially Magna Carta, if England were to put it at greater risk and have America send it back across the ocean, free to be plucked for eternity by Nazi enemies who would love to get their villainous paws on it. So England thought about it, realized it was a bad idea to bring it home with World War II going on, and asked if America wouldn't mind uh, babysitting the priceless dock. Figuring that babysitting a piece of paper wouldn't be too terribly hard, America agreed. They had just the babysitter to keep it safe, Archibald MacLeish. He'd gladly keep the Magna Carta at the Library of Congress next to America's own priceless and irreplaceable founding documents. They'd be safe in Washington, D.C., everyone thought. Were they right? They were, well, they were kind of right. But they didn't know that yet. They had to play it safe because everything kind of changed on December 7th 1941. That was the day that Japanese bombers surprised the U.S. military base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Americans never really considered that the war could come to them, but Pearl Harbor changed everything. Within days, the American government made plans for what to do in case of an enemy attack on the American mainland. Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, is very close to the Atlantic Ocean, and if bombers flew over the sea, it would certainly be a target. Because it was home to the American government, the National Archives, the Library of Congress, and the millions of objects in the collection at the Smithsonian Museum, people realized a tragic event could destroy some of the most important things in American history. It seemed unlikely that Germany could get to the capital, but just in case, Archibald MacLeish made a plan. A few weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the most precious pieces of American history were chosen, safely packed up, and secretly taken to the train station, bound for the most secure place that America had to offer. And along for the ride was Magna Carta. The destination? A new facility built for the Treasury Department, originally intended to secure the federal gold and bullion holdings, and named after a Revolutionary War hero and former bookseller. Which, come to think of it, that might be why the librarian and poet Archibald MacLeish chose the spot in the first place. No, not really. Kentucky's new facility, 
Fort Knox was the ideal choice because it was far from the Atlantic Ocean, deep in the middle of the country. And more importantly, it was a fortress of concrete, steel, and iron. With walls thicker than a full-grown elephant and reinforced to withstand unimaginable blasts, Archie knew the most precious papers in America could never be touched there. For the remainder of the war, Fort Knox was home to quite a collection of ink and parchment, perhaps the most valuable in the world. But in 1944, when it was believed that the threat to American shores was no longer, the Magna Carta was returned to the Library of Congress, where it went on display once again for Americans to see. And in 1946, with the war over and the oceans again being safe to cross, Magna Carta was returned to England. That very same copy did return once more to America in the 2000s for a visit to Boston and a celebration in its one-time temporary home of Washington, D.C. Luckily for England, the only Magna Carta threats since World War II have been more weather-related. That same edition was recently taken off of view from its home at Lincoln Cathedral because of a leaky roof. Water is as bad for 800-year-old documents as it is for your graphic novel collection. Probably worse, actually. But currently, things are dry, and it is available for visitors to see. And perhaps we all have librarian and poet Archibald McLeish to thank. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and I am delighted to introduce Dolly. Dolly! So great to hear from you. Hi, Meg. I'm Dolly, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm going to be talking about Ingeborg Klein. She was born in Germany and lived there peacefully until World War II. Then, being Jewish, she and her mother were forced to flee to France. Ingeborg quickly picked up French and took a job at a hospital. After overhearing her speak German to a soldier, a nurse asked her if she wanted to be a spy. Working at a bar, 16-year-old Ingeborg, posing as a French peasant, listened to Nazi soldiers and relayed the information she overheard to a man named Puri. She was given a medal by the French president at the end of the war. Love your show. Bye! Dolly, it was really great to hear your voice. I miss seeing you. And what a great You Have 30 Seconds. Thank you so much. If anyone else out there has a You Have 30 Seconds or can tell a story in 30 seconds, then you know what to do. Send it in. You can find information at thepastandthecurious.com. You don't need much. A phone will work.
It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Yes, indeed. It's quiz time. Question number one. When Bill Gates bought a certain book for $30.8 million in 1994, it became the most expensive book in history. I don't expect that many people will guess the title, but can you guess the author? Hint, he's been featured on this show. The Codex of Leicester, or Codex Leicester, is a 72-page journal full of scientific observations from the brain and the hand of Leonardo da Vinci. It is one-of-a-kind and handwritten by the master himself, so if you've said da Vinci, pat yourself on the back. And take note, a few books have sold recently for more than $30 million, but when you adjust for inflation and the time back in 1994, this sale price would be over $50 million today, making it easily the most expensive book ever sold. Question number two. A bibliophobia, that's one word, a bibliophobia or a bibliophobia, is the fear of something, obviously ending in phobia. Can you guess what it is the fear of? A bibliophobia is the fear of running out of reading material. That prefix of a in Latin words often means without. So you could say that it's also the fear of being without books. Yikes! Question number three. Whoever holds the rights to a book can collect royalties or money made from the sales of that book. And they can do so for many years after first publishing it. In 1929, an author gave the rights for a very famous book that he had written to the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, England. And as a result, the royalties they still earn off of his book have been enormously helpful in taking care of children in need. Can you guess which book? Bonus points if you can guess the author. In 1929, J.M. Barry gave the hospital the rights for Peter Pan. As a result, the hospital has been raising funds with the help of Peter, Captain Hook, Wendy, Tinkerbell, the Lost Boys, and everyone else. It was a momentous gift. At the National Library in Paris, France, the archivists working there are required to take a few extra steps to protect the researchers from some of the books in their building. This is most unusual. Usually, an archivist's job is to protect important one-of-a-kind documents from people. Students, scholars, anyone writing books, other researchers, they will often use archives to look for primary sources held in the collections. These documents can be letters, receipts, meeting notes, contracts, journals, or diaries that famous or regular people left behind. And usually, archivists make sure that researchers are gentle with these papers and they don't get their oily fingerprints and chocolate sauce all over them. That way, the documents will last for many more generations, just in case anyone else in the future needs them for research. These archivists are protectors of the past, fighting the scourge of candy fingerprints and carelessly torn pages. But when it comes to one famous lady's journals and papers, they are also the protectors of your health. Ask to see some of these dangerous pages, 
and you'll probably hear, you can't touch this. But I'm a professional researcher and I've got fresh new kicks and pants. You can't touch this. It's really important that I see those journals. Look in my eyes, man. You can't touch this. But Mr. Hammer, I mean, is it Hammer? Or should I, shall I call you head archivist, Hammer? Master of collections, Hammer. Got it, MC Hammer. Can I please see the journals? I will sign a waiver. Mama, Mama, Marie Curie's journals are perhaps the most dangerous books in the world. What, you may ask, could make a simple bound collection of paper and ink so dangerous? Well, the books are best described with a word that Marie Curie herself coined. They're radioactive. Now, don't get me wrong. Plenty of things are radioactive. Some nuts are radioactive. So is some kitty litter. Bananas are so commonly radioactive that scientists compare other objects' radioactivity to the yellow fruit with a measurement called the banana equivalent dose. Oh, and actually, you're radioactive too. But these are all things emitting safe levels of radioactivity from common and safe isotopes. The same thing cannot be said for Marie's writings. Or her corpse, for that matter. If you are feeling brave and you still wish to spend some time looking through these jeopardous journals, you'll have to sign a waiver. Basically a contract saying that if you get sick, you won't blame the library for it. You were warned, proceed at your own risk. Also, you'll be required to wear protective clothing, which is lined with lead, just like Marie's coffin. Take it from me, you don't want to touch those books. Marie was born in 1867 in what is today, and what once was, Poland. But at the time, it was under Russian rule, and the Russians did not recognize Poland. Her family, whose last name was Sklodowska, were proud of Poland and its history. They resented the Russian government so much that often Marie would spit at the newly erected Russian statues on her way to school. In the classroom, the teachers would break the law and teach Polish history from books that the Russian government was afraid of. Not because of radioactivity, but because they contained information that they didn't want young Polish students like Marie to know. Anytime Russian administrators visited the school, the teachers and the students would pretend that everything was normal and stick to the Russian-approved curriculum. But once they were gone, it was back to banned books and Polish history for the kids. The death of her mother changed the course of her life. Marie and her older sister pledged to each other that they would support one another financially while they took turns going to university. During her time working, Marie was also attending something called a flying university. It was an underground school of sorts which moved around libraries and people's homes and gave young women an unofficial way to learn and share knowledge. After her sister got a medical degree, it was Marie's turn to shine. She had a scientific mind, was eternally curious about the natural world, and was brilliantly smart. A university in Paris enrolled women, which was unusual in the 1890s, and Marie dedicated herself to scientific studies there. She worked so hard that she would forget to eat, and she had so little money that she would wear all of her clothes to stay warm at night in her unheated apartment. Despite this, Marie graduated first in her class, and the first job she took involved researching magnetism for the steel industry. And when she grew frustrated with the poor lab conditions, someone introduced her to a friend who could help with access to better equipment. His name was Pierre Curie, and the two would eventually get married. 
Pierre was a scientist and a teacher, and he fell in love with Marie. He also realized pretty quickly that she was the smart one in the relationship, which is saying a lot because he was a really smart guy himself. But when they eventually started working together, he followed her lead because he knew that she had a vision that no one else did. In 1896, a scientist named Henry Becquerel discovered that uranium salts emitted rays. There was power radiating from the uranium that could be observed. No one thought that the rays of energy coming from the uranium could just be coming from the uranium. The idea might have first dawned on Henry when a glass vial of uranium salts that he carried around in his pocket burned his skin. Becquerel was able to prove that energy radiated from this uranium though, and a few years later, Marie used some of Pierre's equipment to understand this even more clearly. Her discovery showed that the radiation that Becquerel measured was actually coming from the atoms contained in the uranium. This was revolutionary, and this work founded the field of atomic physics. She also coined a new term to describe this atomic activity. Radioactivity. Radioactivity. Next, Marie, now a young mother, began experimenting with a mineral that contained uranium called pitchblende. This mineral was found commonly in silver mines, and miners hated it so much that they called it bad luck rock. It was useless to them, but they always had to deal with tons of it in order to get the silver that they were really after. When Marie asked one mine in Austria if they could spare some, they were like, yeah, you want pitchblende? Tell you what, you figure out how to move it from here to there and you can have as much as you would like. It's useless to us. But it wasn't useless to Marie. Pitchblende, like you and your bananas, is radioactive. But it's the bad kind of radioactive. Of course, no one really knew that at the time. She quickly realized pitchblende was more radioactive than Becquerel's uranium. After countless weeks, days, and hours of reducing the mineral through heat, brute force, constantly stirring a huge cauldron, and other more delicate sciencey stuff, Marie was able to reduce the mineral to its basic parts, and what she discovered was a brand new element. She called it polonium, after her real, non-Russian home of Poland. And it really threw scientists for a loop. Not long after, she and Pierre isolated and discovered another new element, also highly radioactive, which they called radium. In 1903, Pierre Curie was noted that he and Henry Becquerel were awarded the Nobel Prize for their work and discoveries related to radiation. Pierre found this absurd, and with the support of many others, informed them that none of it would have been done without the true visionary, Marie. I mean, she practically invented the term, right? They agreed, and Marie was awarded the Nobel Prize, becoming the first woman to win the coveted scientific award. But when the invite for the award ceremony came, the Curies replied, We are too busy, and we cannot come. That was a bold move. Pierre was tragically killed in an accident just a few years later, but Marie continued on, and in 1911 she won a second Nobel Prize, which had also never been done before. This one was the Chemistry Prize for her discovery of those elements, polonium and radium. All of this work with radioactive materials took a heavy toll on her body. She was often weak and racked by headaches, or worse. Slowly, she realized that exposure to radium was bad for one's health, and she advocated for the safe use of it. But for many years, the public wasn't going to listen to that. Trust science, y'all. 
It's crazy to think about now, but radium, the very dangerous substance that keeps researchers from touching Marie's journals today, was once added to products to make them more attractive to the buying public. Radium water was sold as a health drink, and in Germany there was a chocolate bar with radium. And because it could glow, it was used on the dials of watches so that they could be red in the dark. It was even put in makeup and lipstick so that women's faces could glow in the dark during a wild night out on the town. Sometimes beauty is fatal. Lots and lots of people got sick and even died from working with or using the material. But it wasn't all bad. Radium is used in treating cancers and has helped many people over the last decades. None of that would have been possible without Marie's hard work. Marie died in 1934 from complications brought on by all of her time spent with these radioactive materials. And today she is buried with Pierre in France's Pantheon, the National Mausoleum, and her body rests inside an iron container, as her body still bears the radioactive contamination of her lifetime, just like her books. It's believed that the radiation levels of her books and journals will slowly drop as the radium contamination deteriorates. If you need to read them in person, they should be safe enough to touch in about 1,500 years. Until then, you'll need to sign that waiver and wear protective clothing. Marie Curie was awesome, and this story doesn't even touch on her work with the x-ray machines during World War I, which is another important part of her story. One other interesting thing that I want to share about her family is the wild number of Nobel Prizes that they can boast. Marie won two. Pierre was awarded one. Their daughter, Irene, also a scientist, was awarded a Nobel in chemistry in 1935. And the man married to their other daughter, Eve, won a Nobel Prize when he was the head of UNICEF, a humanitarian group that provides aid to children. So if you're keeping track, that's five Nobel Prizes in one family. I'm not sure that that's a record that will ever be topped. Well, all right, there you have it. Episode 59, which is mostly about books, is in the books. Yeah, it's in the books. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Continue listening. I've got more episodes coming uh, and some, some interesting, exciting news that I'll have to share uh, soon. And speaking of thanking people, I also have some Patreon people to thank. Asley Boolbool, thank you so much for your Patreon sponsorship. And if there's someone else that I should say out loud uh, for your family, then you just let me know. I'll be happy to do that. But thank you and thank all of you. Also, Ava from Astoria, New York. Ava! I guess being from Astoria, that's about around that's around where the 1939 World's Fair was. So how about that? You got an episode about uh, your neighborhood. Pretty cool. Um, and Wyatt Wolf, Wyatt Wolf from Atwater Village, which, if I'm not mistaken, is near Dodger Stadium in L.A. And uh, we did an episode about that, too. So how cool is that? Sophia from Australia. Sophia! Hey, I'm so glad that you joined. And that was such a sweet note that you sent. Uh, and I'm so glad that you are listening in Australia. We have so many Australian listeners. So thank you and hello to all of them as well. TT and Theo. TT and Theo. Thank you very much. I'm glad that your ears are out there listening to TT and Theo. And last but not least, Martin. Martin. Thanks, Martin. Appreciate you supporting the show as well. If you would like to support the show, you can join Patreon. You can also just tell people about our show with your mouth. That's what your mouth is for. Telling people about the past and the curious. And sometimes eating. 
an alternative to telling people with your mouth is telling people with your fingers. You can subscribe on all of the platforms. You can share it uh, to your class. I don't know. I mean, just tell people. All right, that's enough for me. This is obviously going nowhere. Thank you so much. We'll be back next month. I'm excited about next month's show. I know I say that every time, but I'm always excited. So hope you are too. This has been The Past and the Curious. I am Mick Sullivan. Thank you very much. Toodaloo.